The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Turn us on and the satisfaction's guaranteed. Frank discussion with passion on CJD 800. Welcome to the Friday edition of Passion, where just about anything goes. Coming up after 10.15, I will share some of the latest news stories, some silly stuff, some fun stuff, some things you can learn from. We'll talk about advice from the 1950s on how to snag a man and uh, how that just became popular all of a sudden, or at least it went viral on Facebook. We'll talk about Gen Z, Generation Z or Zed, uh, and marriage, uh, women and their smartphones, a new study about that, and surprising facts about kissing. All that and more, but first... Calling's not the only way to connect. The inbox is easy and always open at 514-800. All right, you can send in uh, your texts at 514-800, or you can email me as well to laurie at drlaurie.com. Dot com. I, I love, uh, I'm going to read this, uh, this text right now, but I love how people make assumptions uh, about me. Uh, is marriage not sacred anymore in your world? You condone casual sex. Is that an example you've set for your own children or is it do as I say, not as I do? Also, your program is more about bodily functions than real passion. I don't even know where to begin on that. Uh, Some people assume that if we talk about whatever sexual topic we're talking about on the program, that somehow it is a, uh, I'm not attaching any uh, value judgment uh, on people's practices. The reality is, wake up. The reality is people do engage in casual sexual relationships. I'm just presenting the facts to you and the research to you. I believe in marriage. I'm a married person. I've been married for uh, 25 years, 26 years. It's not a question of condoning, not condoning. It's each individual is making their own choices. As long as they're not hurting anybody else. I've certainly talked about the research that shows that casual sex is not uh, is not great for women, especially in terms of self-esteem and things like that. So I don't know where you're coming from with all of this, but may, maybe make yourself a little uh, clearer. And you talk about when I ask question when I answer questions, many they're your questions. Many questions I get are about bodily functions and especially genital functions because that those are the organs we use uh, for sexuality. But I'm sorry if you have been listening to this show. We've been on for 22 years. We talk about way more than bodily functions. Um, on this program. Somebody says, "Mm, I don't think that person is a regular listener. That's right. You're not. And if uh, you want to see the topics we cover, go back in time. All our podcasts are available. You can see you are wrong, plain and simple. Hello, Dr. Lori. I got a call from a friend. She is married. Her husband and herself are devoted Catholics, both brought up in strict Catholic households. She has a son, 14, uh, being a kid, and at that age, he is surfing porn on the net. 
I managed to calm her down about that and talked her through how to delete the history, but she came across gay porn videos and she suspected that her son has maybe played with other boys his age sexually. Again, I told her it is just a phase and not to panic. Her biggest fear is her husband finding out he is very homophobic and I need to tell you his opinion of gays or the gay community. She does listen to your show and her husband works evenings. She knows I can keep a secret and I suggested asking you to comment on this situation. She thought it was a great idea to get a professional um, opinion. So let's talk about this for a minute. So it may not be a phase. So what happens to adolescent boys? Oftentimes, it, adolescence is a time of exploration and figuring out your, starting to figure out anyway, your sexuality. It's a, puberty, your sexuality awakens. You try to figure out, am I, uh, who am I attracted to? Sometimes it can be very confusing. Sex play between uh, same uh, gender, same sex is common in terms of exploration and doesn't necessarily mean that a person will be gay or not. My fear in this is if you're, if the son is in fact gay and we're talking about, you know, 10%, close to 10% of the population, he uh, he knows what your views are, what her, what the, the father's views are, especially there's no way this kid's going to come out to his parents or he will be very afraid to. And so we'll, we'll, we'll hide and we'll stay in the closet, which we know, um, like kids who struggle with this and who don't have, uh, supportive families are more at risk for mental health, uh, mental health issues. So as a parent, I think it's important to look and I, I don't want to, to be a judge and jury of anybody or question anybody's religious uh, beliefs or anything like that. All I'm saying is that when, if kids grow up in those environments and they are gay, they are born that way, they are, then they find themselves in a very difficult uh, position. So yes, it could be a phase, but it could also be... Um, not a phase. And this person asked an interesting question. Are you allowed to ask your children if they think they might be gay at the age of 11 or 14? I would say that at the age of 11, that's a, that would not be a, a necessarily an appropriate question, seeing as that they may just be figuring it out. Their, their puberty hasn't even kicked in yet. They may not have arousals yet to either gender. At 14, uh, it could be, but I'm not sure I would ask the question directly. I would just want my kids to know that whomever they choose to love, and I would talk about homosexuality in the home, um, and whomever they choose to love or whomever they feel they are attracted to, they will continue to be loved by you. Uh, and that's what kids need to know, that they will be supportive and I will answer your questions. If you are questioning things uh, or you, you want to find out more, I can help you. Uh, so to me, that's the most, like that's a position uh, take. I think the person figures that because you don't put down or make fun of people that have weird sexual preferences that you are saying that's okay. Well, I try not to be judgmental on the show like everybody has so many such a variation in 
sexual practices. You know, I, I just, it, I can tell you certainly so many things I would say, oh, not for me, not for me, but that doesn't stop me from talking about it because it is for other people. So just because it's not for me, doesn't mean everybody else that does anything other than what I do, I'm the normal one and they're not normal. That doesn't work for me. So I, I really base it on how people feel and about what they're doing. If what they're doing causes a lot of shame and, and, um, and guilt and, and it, uh, you know, create like havoc in, in their relationships, then that's an, a different issue altogether. Then they have particular issues they need to deal with. But if they're practicing consensual sexuality, meaning they have a, a consenting partner, they're doing things legally and they're not harming anybody, then uh, what do you care what, what people are, are doing? Like, you know, why, why do we have to put ourselves in a position of judging others in that way? A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's Passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. Let me share a couple of text responses from some of the things we were talking about before. Uh, Surfing porn, even gay porn. Yeah, definitely some exploration at that age. I remember my friends and my own curiosity when I was at that point, including one friend who might have been gay around age 12 and 13, There's a lot going on for young teenagers and more so now than ever with technology allowing so much access to things good, bad, and indifferent. I hope that boy's mother can just let him know that she loves and supports him first and foremost and then lets him grow and safely explore his curiosities at his own pace. Very, uh, very well said. Uh, I try to ask my son, 14, jokingly, what's your new girlfriend's name? Then I pause and say, or boyfriend. And I like that approach because it's it's inclusive and it, it tells him uh, right off the bat that you believe in love. So whomever you love, it's going to be okay with me. And that's the, the underlying um, message. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but at least you want your children uh, to to know that they would will be safe in in sharing this information with you. Hi, thank you for your show. I'm not sure how to talk to my teenage son uh, about sex about and about sex. Any books? Any suggestions? Unfortunately, I'm comfortable about it. A lot of people are uncomfortable about it, so you're certainly uh, not alone. There are uh, some good books out there. If you send me an email to laurie at drlaurie.com, I will send you a list of resources. I've got a whole list of books for parents, a list of books for younger kids, and a list of books for teens. But the ones that come off the top of my head, one that I liked is a, a, a book for, for, at least for older teens, called The the Sex Book, simply. Uh, and it's by a, a writer called Jane Pavanal, P-A-V-E-N-A-L. I'm not even sure if it's still available, but it's one that, that I liked. And um, there's a book uh, called uh, What's Happening to Me, which is for 
uh, kids who are just going through puberty or, or prior to puberty so they understand and there's one for girls and one for boys and for the parents there's a good book called parents teens and sex the big talk book and the author is bruce cook but there's many more so and there's some being written um all the time so there you passion poet sent in a poem today that uh i'm going to share with you what does true love mean to you to love a husband or a wife is it only to have a companion maybe only a wit a witness to your life can love be unconditional can love be defined and true do you only love your partner so they can take care of you Maybe you are single and have lovers in your heart and shy away from commitment before true love can even start. Do you think of how others may feel? Do you consider what may be going on? What you may think is all right? You might be very wrong. There is no perfect relationship, always bumps and a few white lies, but when two hearts can come together, there is always a compromise. We all want someone to depend on, a shoulder to share a tear, and knowing you are never alone and nothing ever to fear. Um, I love that poem. That's uh, beautiful and really talks about, it speaks to me about the attachment bond that we seek in our relationships and that are, are really, um, so this came up on, on my newsfeed and it was, um, 129 ways to get a husband, uh, or be happy that you're single. That, that was the headline by, uh, Bella DiPaolo was an article she's referencing an article that had appeared in the 1950s in McCall's and it was called 129 ways to get a husband and somebody reposted it I guess the original on Facebook and then it kind of went viral I'm not obviously not going to read you the 129 ways that would be the entire show but I do want to share some of the the stuff to see how how far we've come and maybe how we haven't. I don't know. You tell me. You be the judge. So the first thing they said, where to find him. And these are their suggestions, where to find your man, right? Uh, have your car break down at strategic places. Uh, read the obituaries to find eligible widow widowers. Take up golf and go to different golf courses. Become a nurse or airline stewardess. They have very high marriage rates. Get lost at football games. On a plane, train, or bus, don't sit next to a woman. Sit next to a man. Learn to paint. Set up an easel outside an engineering school. <laughs> I, just, I was laughing when I was reading this. Uh, how to let him know you're there. Okay. To, how do you make him notice you? Stumble when you walk into a room that he's in. Stand in a corner and cry softly. Chances are good that he'll come over to find out what's wrong. Buy a convertible. Men like to ride in them. Learn how to bake tasty apple pies and bring one into the office and let the eligible bachelors taste it. Accidentally have your purse fly open, scattering its contents all over the street. <laughs> and now how to look good to him. So there's a whole bunch here, but I'm just going to read a few. Get better looking glasses. Men still make passes at girls who wear glasses or try contact lenses. <laughs> wear high heels most of the time. They're sexier. Take good care of your health. Men don't like girls who are ill. Dress differently from the other girls in the office. And here's a kicker. Go on a diet if you need to. 
And don't be too fussy. Don't whine. Girls who whine stay on the vine. And then how to land him. Show him you can have fun on a cheap date. Tell his friends nice things about him. Send his mother a birthday card. Ask his mother for her recipes. Talk to his father about business and agree that taxes are too high. On the first date, tell him you are not thinking of getting married. Don't talk about how many children you want. And never let him know he's the only one, even if you have to stay home one or two nights a week. Basically, um, <laughs> get make him run for it, right? Uh, remain innocent, but not ignorant. And make your home comfortable when he calls. Large ashtrays, comfortable chairs, and learn to play poker. Those are just some of them. In the 1950s article, 129 ways to get a husband. Ay, 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 is all I can say. Uh, when it comes to marriage, Gen Z more likely to say, I don't. New research reveals that younger generations are more devoted to the success of their professional lives than they are to building a family. Only 44% of millennials between the ages of 23 and 38 were married in 2019. Marriage rates are plummeting and at the speedy rate of the decline, it is predicted that about 25% of millennials will never be married. This will be an all-time low, according to the Pew Research Center. But what about the preceding generation where the oldest members are now reaching their 20-somethings? Are they going to increase the rate of being unwedded? Gen Z has a hope to get married, but they don't find it to be a necessity. The question is, why? Why do the tech-savvy young adults view marriage as a non-necessity? This is the group, the group that grew up watching cultural shifts within gender roles and social equality. One-third of those in this target group grew up in a household where their parents had children before they got married. Gen Z is used to unconventional living, so their unorthodox views on marriage follow suit. I just feel like marriage has been historically a way to just sell off women and wives, says one person, one of the authors, and now you don't really need to get married unless it's for financial reasons. Other than that, if you're together, then you're together. According to a survey taken among college students in Tallahassee, this is a, a very popular sentiment for most of Generation Z. They want a lifelong partner, but they don't want to have to get the government involved, setting their marriage in stone. Can we attribute their fear of government involvement to the rise in divorce rates? Yep. About 40 to 50% of married couples in the U.S. divorce. Uh, so it makes young people today less secure in the idea of committing to and being in a lasting marriage. Much of the rise in cohabitation as an alternative to marriage is actually an alternative to divorce. If you never make a commitment, you are never going to divorce. Thoughts of the Generation Z, our young adults, our young folks.
From the pleasure and the politics to the hang-ups and the heartbreak, you're listening to Passion, CJD 800. All right, here's your stupid sex story of the day. Sometimes they're just gross sex stories, sometimes they're weird, and sometimes they're useless stories. This one falls into the gross category. Uh, Police in Vietnam said they found about 320,000 recycled used condoms. Yup. That were being repackaged as new. Uh, This uh, market inspectors in the Binh Duong province raided a factory near Ho Chi Minh City where they discovered that these used condoms were being repackaged to be sold at the market. An inspector said the factory's 34-year-old owner, a woman, confessed they purchased the condoms from someone else, the state-owned newspaper said. After buying the condoms from a man, they were washed and reshaped, then packed in plastic bags. Video taken by uh, the their state broadcaster there and obtained by the uh, news agency shows sacks filled with condoms. It also shows tools apparently used to wash and reshape the condoms in the factory. It was unclear how many used condoms were already resold. Of course, a health official said the condoms were an extreme health risks to users. Duh. So that's pretty darn gross, but it goes to show you, I suppose, maybe new new condoms there might be very expensive. So there's like a black market for used condoms. Like, well, but what do people, like, anyway, I don't even, I, I don't even have the words to describe <laughs> what I feel about this. It's ridiculous. Anyhow, uh, so, you know, I like to share some uh, studies uh, with you. So I have a few to share with you now. A recent study found that British women spend on average 12 hours more a week on their mobile phones, checking emails, sending texts or browsing social media than they do spending time with their partner. That's disturbing. Uh, Perhaps even more disturbing is that the researchers found if people are unable to be on their phones, it leads to stress, anger, and panic. A fifth of those surveyed said it would be harder to be without a phone for a week than their partner. And one in six said they were entirely dependent on their mobile phones. Now that's scary. That's really scary. If you are interested, I just saw, uh, last week I saw this on Netflix, the, I think it's called the, the social dilemma. I think it's the social dilemma. It's great. And what so eye opening in terms of how, uh, social media and all those engines work to get us to stay hooked, right? Like there's a whole dark, dark side to, to this. There's great sides to social media, but all of the, and the, the, um, the documentary talks to all the CEOs and inventors and from all the different sites and, and, and what have you, all the different apps, uh, and social media things. And, and they're like saying it wasn't in, when it, we created it, it wasn't intended for what is being used today. That's, that was what was most disturbing. But anyway, if you want to watch something super interesting, 
Uh, it might get you off your smartphone, actually. Uh, watch, uh, watch that. Uh, gross, like recycling tampons. Yeah, that's, that's pretty gross. <laughs> uh, let's see, what more can I share? Oh, let's talk about sexting and women. There was another study done, the Kinsey Institute, uh, along with a, another company, did a study of 130,000 women to examine uh, dating app use, and they did this across 191 different countries. So this is like the biggest study of its kind. Uh, the study was called Mobile Sex Tech, App- Sex Tech Apps, How Use Differs Across Global Areas of High and Low Gender Equality. So this is, really offers an unprecedented look at how women around the world interact with dating and sex-related mobile apps to either answer questions, seek information, and improve their sex lives in the process. Gives uh, us insight into the use of technology in, uh, in a really large number of women around the world. Over half of all women, so uh, close to 60% actually, reported having received or sent sexting messages. And guess what? This was consistent across all geographic areas. Researchers were surprised to learn that women in countries with higher gender inequality reported being more than four times more likely to report sexting than women in more egalitarian regions. They say this suggests that more conservative ideals regarding gender roles do not necessarily prevent women from engaging in taboo or forbidden behaviors. This insight opens up an entirely new line of inquiry for understanding how women navigate social expectations to meet their own needs and desires. The study also found that women in places with greater gender inequality were twice as likely to report that they've used apps to improve their sexual relationships, whereas women from places with lower inequality were more likely to report that they've used apps to learn about sexual relationships. So fascinating. Uh, They also found that about 22% of women used mobile apps to find uh, partners. I love these studies. They're uh, so interesting to see how people around the world use all these things. Okay, now let's talk about sperm for a moment. The headline is this, the fastest swimmers don't always win the race. We've always assumed that, right? That it's like a little race to get to the cervix. So a study on how a woman's body chooses healthy sperm offers answers for couples struggling with infertility. It turns out that the fastest swimmers don't always win the race, at least when it comes to sperm. A new study from Finnish researchers found that whether or not a woman becomes pregnant may come down to how compatible her cervical mucus is with the man's sperm. In fact, the gooey discharge plays the role of gatekeeper, getting rid of sperm that don't have a good genetic 
chance. Wow, our bodies are amazing, amazing things. The study exposed the sperm of eight men to the cervical mucus of nine women undergoing infertility treatment in a variety of conditions, and they measured sperm motility, viability, and hyperactivation in each male-female combination. All of the individuals studied were mapped genetically to see what genetic combinations were most likely to, um, to pair up. So basically, the sperm of men who were genetically most different than the females were most successful in surviving, giving them a greater chance at uh, fertilization. And this supports what they know of animal studies in the same in the same vein. So obviously, this new research can hold some promise for infertile uh, couples. It may be the genetic uh, incompatibility somehow that is affecting uh, infertility done in this area. Passion with Dr. Lori Batito on CJAD 800. On the Friday edition of Passion, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So let me share with you an article written by Susan Pizgadua on the five things couples do that lead to divorce. And think about that. So uh, number one, they worked against each other. When a partner demonizes the other or holds resentments for years, it creates a very unstable marriage. You're doing this if you say things like he always or she never and demonize your partner, seeing them as the opposition. You have the same fight repeatedly without resolution or compromise then you're polarizing and, or you loop on a story of how your partner is harming you. A lot of people do this. I see this in my practice all the time, working against each other rather than together as a team. Uh, number two, they didn't communicate with each other about their needs and feelings. You're doing this if you often start sentences with you should or why can't you, I can't believe you just said or did that. So that's a critical or attacking. In fact, when I work with couples, I tell them, I give them a couple of communication rules. Never ever start a conversation with you or why, because that immediately puts the other person on the defensive. Feel resentful towards your spouse much of the time. You often think he or she should know what bothers me or that that bothers me or can't he or she see what I need? Uh, and you're doing this if uh, you've stopped spending time together. No, they've stopped. That's the third one. They stop spending time together. So couples who that lead to divorce, one of the things is time. Obviously, it's very hard to build intimacy when there's no time. Uh, so you're doing this if you don't want to spend as much time with your spouse anymore. You believe it's easier to avoid a difficult discussion or you'd agree that you're like two ships in the night. And a fourth reason, they began to see the solution to their problems outside of the marriage. So you're doing this if you daydream about how great life would be if you were single or in a different relationship. 
you get overly busy at work, you find a new hobby that takes you away from home, or worse, you develop some kind of addiction. Uh, you start an emotional affair with someone and become affair ready, basically. And finally, the couples that tend to divorce are the couples that do not seek help. Many couples who end up divorcing either don't get professional guidance at all, or they don't seek it out soon enough. Letting time pass, hoping things will get better is not a good strategy. And you'd be doing this if you'd rather divorce than go to therapy, which is far more expensive, by the way. Or you tell yourself uh, things will get better when blank blank happens and you keep doing the same old, same old. Uh, and or if your relationship is in a crisis. Please, help is out there. Seek it. A negative communication buzzword triggers are sure not a good sign to hear from within a couple. <laughs> Unfortunately, this text writes, I live number one, not two, three, I'm guilty, not four, guilty of five. Well, and I guess you're divorced. <laughs> so speaking of uh, therapy, I want to talk a little bit about this because I read another interesting article by John Gressel that says the 10 commandments for partners in couples therapy. So he's suggesting because couples therapy obviously is can be costly, uh, so it pays to do it smart. And I love the way he, he did this. Uh, and it goes with the kind of the last uh, article I shared with you. Thou shalt not blame, shame, or criticize your partner in therapy. Come to therapy each time prepared to learn what you can do to be a better partner. Ask not what your partner can do for you, but what you can do for your partner. I just love this. Uh, number two, thou shalt take ownership of making your relationship the best it can be. You can't rely on your partner to think of what to talk about each week or make him or her drag you unwillingly to therapy like a rebellious teen. You are as responsible for making sure your relationship improves as your partner is. And if you don't like something, take the initiative. Thou shalt endeavor at all times to protect the rational, relational space from toxic pollution. You can, we, us therapists, can feel it uh, in, in the room. So we tend to pollute with criticism. So you do not want to do that. You want to purify it by seeing what is right rather than what is wrong in each other. Number four, thou shalt not keep secrets from each other or your therapist. There's a line that says you're only as sick as your secrets. So you need to face that. Your relationship will get stronger from the intimacy created by speaking sometimes very tough truths. Uh, thou uh, shalt not come to therapy with a bomb to drop on your partner. It's natural to save the tough conversations for couples therapy, but tell your partner ahead of time what you have in mind so they are don't feel ambushed in the office of the therapist. Uh, thou shalt not wait for permission from your partner to say what you want. Be strong enough in yourself to say what you want without asking for permission, even if your partner might have objections. Thou shalt not mind, thou shalt not mind read, nor expect your partner 
to mind read, this is a, a very, very common problem when people say things like, well, you know, she should know what I need or he should know what I want. Number eight, thou shalt nurture the positive in your relationship at least as much as focus on the negatives. Couples often come to therapy thinking they need to focus on all that is wrong. You do not. Your relationship will improve much more and faster if you focus at least as much on what's right as what you do uh, that's wrong. So, and, and that makes a lot of sense. You've got to look at the strengths that couples have and what is it that keeps them together as well. Number nine, thou shalt remember the small child living inside your adult partner's body. Whenever your partner acts in a way that makes no sense to you, be curious about what is going on for the little child inside. Everyone makes sense all of the time. And if you think they don't, you're either missing information or trying to impose your own. Thou shalt expect challenges to the point of wanting to give up. What I'm reading are the 10 commandments for partners in couples therapy. So true, each of these things. Uh, there usually comes a point in therapy when the magic of having some outside help help you with your relationship wears off and you feel stuck with the same problems you came in with. There is no way back at this point. You have to continue to move forward and hopefully... Um, you hold on to that until you can reconnect it uh, with uh, reconnect with it yourself. So, uh, yes, it is hard work, <laughs> very hard work, and that is part of therapy. So I love this, just love this. It was in Psychology uh, Today, the Ten Commandments for Partners in Couples Therapy. I think I'm going to save this one to share with the couples. I work with and make them my, the rules. If you're coming into therapy, here are your rules. I want you to think about that. Thank you. Thank you all for hanging out with me. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you to Nicole Proano, our technical producer, and Linda Delisi, our passion researcher. If you want to connect with me, find me, send me emails. You could do that through drlaurie.com uh, on uh, Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Lori Betito, B-E-T-I-T-O, on the, my website as well as on uh, the CJD page on iHeart, on the iHeart app, you can find all the podcasts of past shows as well. Uh, coming up next here on CJD, we bring you the CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening, a fabulous weekend, and remember to live your life with passion.